This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. This is your Need To Know Financial Podcast. Thanks for joining us on our show. I'm Candice Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now, today we're joined by another one of our very own Shore & Partners Research Analysts, Danny Eunice, who's responsible for covering the ASX e-commerce, retail and tech-based businesses, such as companies like Adore Beauty, Ordinate, Dust Group, Silk Logistics, Prosper, OpenPay and Premium, to name a few, within his current research universe. So welcome, Danny. It's really nice to have you on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So Danny is well known in the industry. He is currently a senior analyst at Shoring Partners and has been in that role since 2010. And like Felicity said, your expertise, you know, you cover the small to mid cap industry companies with a specific focus on exciting tech, retail, e-commerce businesses. So Danny has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to that sector in the ASX market. In fact, over 20 years experience in the stockbroking and institutional banking industry and I think you've covered an excess of about 215 ASX companies over your lifetime. I have. Even at Shores, I was actually working out um, over the last, you know, I'm into my 12th year now, I've covered about 80, 90 stocks just while I've been at Shores. So. That's impressive. You're busy. That means you know <laughs> 83 stocks or companies really well. So that's that's very impressive. And you know, in uh, what we've noticed since working at Shore Partners, you're also closely heavily involved with ASX uh, companies that have recently IPO'd, right? Yeah. So just to name a few, Adore Beauty, Ordinate, Zip, Dusk, Zebit, and Silk Contracts, you have also helped with that. So we're going to hear more insights into how you're involved in that side of the business yeah. and also like raising capital for businesses um, like Brainchip and OpenPay and Wiser in the past. Absolutely. Now, as a reminder, guys, our chat today is not personal advice. And even though we're registered advisors and analysts at Shore & Partner, please note that this podcast and the content discussed does not constitute financial advice, nor is it financial product. So, Danny, let's start off with, can you give us a brief rundown on the current ASX technology and retail sector that you do cover? You know, what's been going on that you've noticed of late that's, you know, sparked your interest? good and bad news. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's always something happening in small caps and there's always something happening, you know, globally on a macro point perspective. So when I look at the two buckets that we're talking about, retail slash e-commerce and technology, there's different parcels that really impact both those sectors. So I think the first thing to say is there's a certain element of fear out there in the market at the moment. Okay. So the geopolitical tensions with Russia and the UK, they're impacting the market. The threat of interest rate rises, we're already seeing overseas central banks uh, incorporating that into their strategy going forward. That is also playing into it. You're seeing a slowdown in the US as well in terms of consumer confidence and consumer spending um, outside of certain categories like luxury goods and pets. That's also impacting as well. In terms of specific things, when it comes to retail, the real key issue here is slowing sales, which I'll talk about um, further down the track. And the one in retail or sorry, the one in uh, technology is really around a refocus away from sales and ARR. ARR is annual recurring revenues to something a bit more substantive. And I'll talk about the reasons why. But overlaying both those sectors, the number one thing that's been really impacting the last three, four weeks, in fact, probably since February reporting season, is the COVID-induced supply chain issue. Okay, that is a global thing impacting all industries, not only retail slash e-commerce, not only technology. So your COGS inflation there, your cost of goods sold, i.e. your raw materials, we're seeing a massive explosion in costs there and companies are being unable or unwilling or uncomfortable in pushing through price increases to cover that. You're seeing operating expense inflation. It's not only hard to get staff, but you've got to pay them 20, 30, 40, even percent more than what you were paying them 12 months ago in this environment, particularly if you're a developer or a systems engineer, 
you're, you're also seeing much higher churn rates, particularly in retail, and you're seeing very high levels of abs- absenteeism. Now, that absenteeism is not a function of loss of stamina or, or unhappiness with the work that's being done. It's a function of COVID, so people being sick. I mean, one of the companies I cover, Silk, had 25% of its staff off on its critical peak Christmas season out of its 700 staff off last year. So that gives you an indication of what's happening there. So it's a combination of things that's really impacting both those sectors. It's the supply chain, which is COVID impacted. It's the geopolitical tensions that we're currently seeing playing out in the UK with Russia and and Ukraine and, you know, what that means for China's involvement and Australia's involvement, et cetera. The interest rate and and economic environment is also impacting. I think they're the the main fundamentals that have really impacted the sector. And, you know, both sectors have derated considerably and they're the reasons why. And so that's really great insight because there's a lot of moving pieces, right, that we all have to factor in as investors in the markets. But you touched on China in particular, right, and in particular the Chinese e-commerce companies, Alibaba, have just been smashed of late. So I know you don't cover those in particular, but they're in your scope. So what's your thoughts on that? Do you think we're bottomed out there? Yeah. So when it comes to retailers, China is absolutely the most important supplier of goods. Mm. I mean, something like 80, 85, you can go as high as 90% of all products manufactured now for most retailers come out of China. Mm. So the port delays, the COVID shutdowns, the restrictions by the government, you know, all these things have really played in terms of supply. So if you want to past the retailers or the e-commerce segment further, I'd put it this way. There are a couple of issues that are very intrinsic to retailers and e-commerce players that are not particularly specific or significant to other sectors like technology. The first one is inventory. Your inventory position is really, really important. It used to be, you know, up until one to two years ago, pre-COVID, you could easily book your inventory from China in August, September, maybe even as late as October for your Christmas sales period. You remember Christmas for for retailers is the key selling point. For some retailers, it can be 80% of their business for the full year in that one month. Okay. So what we've seen is a shift of retailers going from just-in-time inventory, so having that inventory, you know, two, three months out before Christmas to having it just in case now. So you've got to order early. So we've seen a lot of our retailers and a lot of our logistics customers now ordering their Christmas inventory up to nine months early. They're actually starting in February, March to ensure, number one, they bypass the high container goods costs that are currently four times the current rate. Number two, that you don't have the delays that we saw over the last two years because of COVID. So you've seen a complete shift. So that's the first thing that's changed the whole e-commerce thing. The second thing is the online acceleration that's happening. The Alibabas of this world, the Amazons of this world, they are really driving online penetration in Australia. Now, in Australia, retailers have been pretty slow on the ball on this, okay? So Australia Post this week put out a report in terms of online ordering in calendar year 2021, roughly about 24% of Australians did an online order in 2021. That compares to over 50% over the same period in Korea. 53% of Koreans now use online more than they do visiting stores. And in the US and in Europe, online penetration is 30 to 40% mm. of total sales. So we've been very slow in that regard. COVID has been a wake-up call for retailers here. Now, one of the primary reasons why Australia has been slow in online acceleration relative to the rest of the world is twofold. It's our distance, it's the cost of getting goods here, and it's our disparity ge- geographically. I mean, 90% of the population are on the coast and there's a big gap in the middle of Australia where it's very hard to ship goods. So the likes of Amazons can't use dropship models here because you're looking at vast distances in the thousands of kilometres, whereas in the US you've got, you know, very concentrated demographics across the the various states there. So I think that's the second thing. I think the third thing really is around consumer confidence. Internationally, we are still seeing relatively resilient consumer confidence, particularly during COVID when people are at home, you know, they spent on the home, they spent more on services rather than physical goods. You know, they looked after themselves, particularly the beauty and personal care category has been very, very strong, which is one of the reasons we like some of the companies we cover. So I think they're the specific things that have been driving e-commerce. E-commerce will continue to accelerate going forward, but it won't be at the pace that we're seeing the Alibabas or the Amazons are doing internationally. Okay. So I guess basically to kind of wrap that bit up for our listeners, you do think that 
e-commerce will improve, yes. you know, potentially by the end of the year or going into 2023, 2024, just not at the speed it was. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and that's why I said COVID has been a boon for investing into this online space. Why wouldn't a retailer here in Australia want to go online? I mean, it's, it's cheaper as a cost to service. The margins can be higher, certainly not in the, the opening stages. You know, your margins are higher because you need to spend money to, to, to build up that investment, that platform, the mobile app, et cetera, et cetera, get the sales and marketing out. But certainly after one to two years, your gross margins should be superior to your physical in-store gross margins because you don't have you don't need the staff you don't need the the rental payments you don't need the additional supply chain issues that you, you traditionally have with within store so absolutely the investment is valid and absolutely it will continue to grow here in Australia I think um, if you look at Frost and Sullivan for example and Bain and Company two independent researchers they see Australian online as a percentage of total retail getting to about 25 to 30% over the next two to three years. Australia Post in its reports this week said, you know, they expect online here in Australia to double over the next five years. That's the pace of acceleration that's happening. That pace, albeit, is very strong, but it's still not as strong as what we're seeing of offshore. Yeah, and that's really interesting. I mean, I know Candice and I are definitely a part of that 24%. I actually prefer online shopping um, and potentially, you know, even if something doesn't, I think that something's going to look really nice on, uh, it doesn't, and then I still don't actually send it back. So I think they'd be making a little bit more money from Uh-oh, people. Oh, you're one of those people. <laughs> people like me. And that, it's, it's the returns where they don't make money. I absolutely agree with you, Felicity and Candice. You know, I, I shop online a lot. It used to be five years ago. I'll take a, a male example, for example. Yeah. Five years ago, there was no way I knew that males, either friends or colleagues, would buy a shirt or a pair of shoes online. Now it's normal because of, you know, very flexible return policies. Um, Similarly with suits and all that sort of stuff. Furniture is still a difficult one. Bulky goods is still very difficult, which is why the next Scarlies of this world, you know, have struggled to move into the online arena. But certainly for, for, for personal clothing, as long as you can offer very flexible return options, and that's what a lot of retailers do these days, I think online will continue to grow as our mindset continue to change. And that, that mindset change is really driven by millennials yeah. who really want to interact on the on their smartphones 24-7, who want flexible return policies, who want convenience, who want the full range of products available globally. You know, instead of getting, you know, one version of your, your Royal Yeezys, you're getting all five, six different iterations globally, <laughs> and you're getting price harmonisation. You know, for a mm. long time we were ripped off here in Australia, the so-called Australia tax, because of our distance, because we didn't have, you know, we couldn't see what the rest of the world were paying for these goods. Now we can instantly at the touch of our phones. Yeah. And you've got the buy now, pay later, um, which Correct. is another sector that you cover. So I guess coming back to Australia yep. again, uh, the reporting season's just wrapped up. So I guess what were some of your key takeaways from this sector? Yeah, so the two sectors that I look at, I alluded to them in in my introductory comments. So let's go to retail first. The major one for retail out of reporting season was the slowing growth rates. Now, that should not be a surprise. You've got to go back the last 12 months. Most retailers, particularly those that were open with physical or bricks and mortar stores and the e-commerce players, saw an absolute boon with people stuck at home and online ordering. Okay, it was absolutely massive. So you're now comping those very, very elevated growth rates from the last 12 months. In the case of Dusk, online grew 120%. You know, physical bricks and mortar grew 40% on the previous year. It is very, very hard now to get growth on top of those very, very high numbers. So what you are seeing post-reporting season with retailers is a reset. You are now seeing growth rates either being flat or negative relative to last year. Now, negative on a prima facie basis looks bad, but as I said, you have to comp it to what they were doing over the last 12 months, which was absolutely exponentially right at the top. There was no way they could replicate growth on top of, you know, effectively where they already were. So that's that's the, that's the specific takeaway for retailers. The sec, in terms of technology, I alluded to this in my introductory comments, and that was around the shift away from sales and ARRs. Now, the reason we're seeing that is any technology company can grow its sales by throwing OPEX at it. You know, just invest in the business. You can gain customer acquisition and aggregation, okay, who can spend money and buy your volume and your transaction volumes, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't give you an underlying picture of how, your earnings and your returns are on that spend. 
That is why the market is now thinking valuations based on sales and sales in a cocoon on their own don't mean much when you're not looking at how much is being spent to achieve those sales. So a good retailer, for every dollar spent, you'd expect them to make a return on that dollar. But the reality is they don't because they've got to invest in marketing, they've got to invest in sales, they've got to invest in their, their loyalty schemes, they have to invest in the store network, the platforms, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very, very hard in this environment to get a return on that dollar spend. So now it's a function, the market's now moving towards earnings instead of sales as, as a key issue because your earnings incorporate the cost of delivering those sales, which is critical. The other one is, and this is the first time I can remember this happening, November for most retailers is now equal to or larger than Christmas, the December period. Okay, remember, November has changed over the last two years here in Australia. It's been a global trend. So Black Friday sales you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, so you've got Black Friday sales, you've got Click Frenzy, you've got Halloween at the end of October going into November. All those promotional periods are now driving forward the sales that you otherwise would have got at Christmas. So I think that's a spectacular change that we've seen um, in, in the last reporting season for retailers. So I think that's really important. The second thing is the flexibility of payment options. I think it was you, Felicity, who touched on buy now, pay later. So Australia's been a world leader in buy now, pay later for the last two, three years. We brought it to the world. So that flexibility has been another thing that's, that's really added momentum to volumes and transaction volume sales for retailers. You speak to any retailer, they'll say as soon as they put in Afterpay, OpenPay, Zip, Sezzle, Split It or whatever, they automatically saw a 10 to 30% increase in their sales because of that option. The other thing that really came out is, um, particularly in, in the technology space from the fintechs that we saw from reporting season is the big banks are still shedding market share in terms of catering to the millennials. It's really the millennials now who are driving consumer spending, consumer spending patterns, where technology is heading. And by that I mean is millennials, and we're talking people who are under the age of 25, say, they are less likely to use cash, they are Mm. less likely to use ATMs, they are less likely to use credit cards, and they are less likely to walk into a big four bank. I mean, I don't fit that category, but I can't remember the last time I had cash in my wallet. In fact, I don't even carry a wallet anymore. Um, It's all on my phone. I barely ever carry my credit card. I haven't been to an ATM in months, and I certainly haven't been inside a bank, a big four bank, for the last six months. So the millennials are really driving change in terms of convenience and the flexibility of payment options at the POS. The POS is the point of sale. The other big change that came out of reporting season is the number of retailers now who are focusing on private label. Previously, it was all about branded products. One of the real ways to grow your margins, and Adore Beauty are doing this, Dusk are doing this, Shaver Shop are doing this, um, is to really put out your own private label. So the cost of production is much lower than a branded product. And you can, you know, as long as you're not cannibalizing an existing product skew or a product segment, you can really grow that category for those that don't want to pay the big bucks for the branded products, and that will deliver to you. On the private label um, side of things, do you know who started that trend, like which retailer sort of pioneered that idea? Oh, it's been around for ages. So we know, you know, in us here in Australia, Kogan was one of the first movers. You know, Kogan about five, six, seven years ago moved to private branding because they saw they were getting ripped off, you know, from from, from the big uh, conglomerates like Samsung and Sony for the TV panels and electronics, et cetera, et cetera. You're really beholden to the price they charge when there's no other competitive product out there in the market. What about Coles, right? Coles or Woolworths. Correct. They've been ahead of the curve for yeah. ages, forever. Absolutely. Yeah. But for a long time, they had the strategy wrong. Okay, mm. so they really pitched it on a price point, not at a qualitative level. The, the retailers who are doing private label really well now are those that are offering a product that is not only cheaper significantly than a branded product, but the quality is almost there. And that's why at one stage, Coles had three different private um, private label brands in its supermarkets. It's now rationalised those down. So you want to be able to offer a product that has almost all the attributes of a branded product, but at a considerably cheaper price. And so that's a really interesting insight into your role as an analyst. I guess, do you have a checklist, an ingredients list that 
it helps you narrow down the universe, right? I don't even know how many stocks would be in your coverage. So how do you bring it down to the most compelling business that you want to follow and have conviction for for at least three, five, you know, plus 10 years? Yeah, no, it's a really good question, Candice, because it's one I think about continuing on a continuing basis. For every stock I cover, I probably look at 20. You know, we, we have a weekly stock selection committee here at Shore and Partners where the analysts present ideas for potential stocks that they want to cover. So what's the process that we do for this? So first of all, ideally, we want something that's market liquid and has a good market cap size. So we want something ideally that is over 100 mil market cap. Because once you get under 100 mil market cap, you're limiting yourself. 90% of the fund managers out there can't play in that space. Liquidity is always an issue. So I think that's the first thing. So the metrics that we look forward when we put forward companies potentially for coverage are as follows. You're looking at, you want a business that's a good, strong cash flow generator. Okay, cash flow is the be all and end all. Ideally, if it's not an early stage company like a tech company, it should have good cash flows. It should have a strong earnings trajectory. It doesn't have to be profitable in the next one to two years. You know, we like to go along a journey of these companies, which is why we like a lot of tech companies, where you can see that clear trajectory getting to EBITDA or earnings profitability or even break even. You want a really strong management team. You know, you want a management team out there that can under-promise and over-deliver. I mean, two classic examples, you know, Nick Scarley, Anthony Scarley, the CEO, he's been absolutely awesome, you know, for the last decade. He's continually under-promised and he's continually over-delivered. Markets love that, right? Everyone loves loves that. Everyone loves it, right? (laughs) Silk, Silk Silk Logistics have done exactly the same thing, you know, a 20% upgrade to their prospectus forecast. They were so confident in their business model that they provided not one year of forecast in their prospectus, but two years. Market loves to see that. That's confidence in management and management's ability to execute. Okay, so that's really, really important as well. You want skin in the game. You know, ideally the founders or the management team own you know, a stack of the shares or a stack of the equity in the business because that also gives you comfort and they won't act against the best interests of the shareholders when they have that. You want an attractive sector. That is very variable as well. You know, right now, buy now, pay later is on the nose. Fintechs are a little bit on the nose. You know, SaaS is a little bit on the nose. The whole tech space is pretty much on the nose at the moment. That is the seasonality that you see in terms of ebbs and flows in the market. But if you're in an attractive sector with recurring revenues, that is always an attractive proposition. The other things we look at is, you know, strong IP. You want a business that's actually got IP. A lot of companies out there and mining services and technology are notorious for this. Two things I always get from CEOs when I speak to companies is, you know, where's your IP? They'll often say, we've got the leading platform in the market or the leading technology in the market. And then you go do a channel check and you see it's just like everybody else's. Second thing they'll say is, oh, we have no competitors but then you go do a channel check. Everybody has competitors. There are very, very few companies out there that don't have competitors. So you really want strong IP in tech and you've really got to do your due diligence on that. The other thing is we want to see a company, particularly in the tech space, really investing in that technology continuously. The good companies do it a lot. You know, Ordinate does it. You know, the R&D investment is, is a significant percentage of revenues. A technology company should be spending anything between 10 and 20% of its revenues in R&D. And good companies will do that. I mean, that's why it took Amazon 15 years to get profitable. You know, it's why it took Atlassian seven, eight years to, 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 to do this, exactly the same thing. So you also want a competitive advantage. It's really hard to find a competitive advantage for companies, you know, particularly in retail where, you know, in, in apparel, for example, which is very competitive, there are plenty of competitors out there that, that offer exactly the same product just under a different brand and a different price point. Okay, so what is the competitive advantage that we can see in this business? If it's, a, it's a, if it's a startup like tech, what's the monthly cash burn? Is it likely to require licks of capital to keep this business afloat? And how far away is it from profitability? And then you want to look at the macro things, you know, what we call the top-down view. Now, what are the structural tailwinds and headwinds? Many companies have headwinds, like in a rising interest rate environment. What does that mean for their business? But also many of them have tailwinds as well. You know, for many of them, what's negative for most could be a positive for them. Now, when we put all that together... You then arrive at a business proposition and you look at it really from a Michael Porter analysis perspective, you know, a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And then you, you try and build up a valuation of this business. You model it out, you build a value, you get to a valuation and you really want to see an earnings trajectory there. And it's, it's not easy to do. You want to see top line growth. You want to see clear drivers, clear assumptions that will drive your earnings, what the addressable market looks like, how much of that addressable market in terms of market share they can win. And you want to see clean accounting standards. 
And in terms of valuation, just to give you a little bit of flavor, I use three different valuation tools when I'm looking at a company, whether or not to initiate coverage on it or to model it. The standard one is DCF, a discounted cash flow valuation. So that's basically taking 10 years of cash flows. So it's taking your cash flows, less your working capital and all your expenses and effectively discounting it back to a current day value, okay? So it incorporates things like your cost of debt, your cost of equity, a beta for volatility in the market. The DCF valuation is very attractive for a company where you can see and where you can model, you know, at least 10 years of earnings going forward, okay? So that's the first one I use. The second one is is what's called an enterprise value multiple. Your enterprise value is basically your market cap plus your net debt, okay? So You'll see often, you know, an EV multiple in terms of sales or EBITDA or EBIT, depending on where the company is in its maturity. So that is really a comp code to building up a sum of the parts. To take a classic example, if you're a big company like West Farmers, you've got various businesses. You know, if Bunnings were doing 100 million in turnover a year, Officeworks was doing 100 million in turnover a year, Kmart and Target were doing 100 million dollars each in turnover per year, you wouldn't pay the same prices for those businesses. You'd pay a higher price for the business that's growing faster, that has a better earnings trajectory, that delivers higher margins, all that sort of stuff. And that's where the EV sales multiple comes in as well. And the final one is we use a price to earnings um, ratio relative to the market. So if it's a really good business, it should trade at a higher valuation to the market, okay, if, if it's growing much faster than most businesses. So we use a composite of those three, ideally, you know, 30, you know, one third, one third, one third. And I find that actually works really well because it, it allows you to see the differences in the valuation that you can get across all three. Okay, Danny. So after all of that, that is absolutely so fantastic. So you cover about 20 stocks. Is that right? And you know, what's the maximum number of stocks that you could cover? If you want to add in a new one, do you have yeah. to get rid of another one? I guess, Correct. you know, the other side of the track, um, you know, removing a stock from your coverage. Because in our episode with Jules, he said it's very hard to break up with a company like a divorce. <laughs> do you feel the same way? Because I know there has been a, a stock that was removed from your coverage fairly recently, Zebit. Uh, you know, what went wrong? Absolutely. No, another really, really good question. So there's a few things happening there. So so to answer the first one, you know, yes, right now I cover 10 stocks. Up until recently, I covered 15, but I dropped a whole bunch for various reasons. How many should an analyst cover? Look, this is an ongoing debate. Certainly with my boss, it's, it's a debate we, we often have. I think 15 is the right number. You know, when I started at Shores, I was doing 25. I got down to as low as five. Now I'm back at 10, needing to get to 15 by June. I think 15 is the right number in terms of analyst independence, in terms of analysts being able to apply equal time to each of those 15 names. So that's the first part of the question. In terms of dropping stocks, yeah, this is a really interesting one. So I disagree with Jules. I'm actually ruthless. I actually don't harbor any affiliation with my stocks. I try not to fall in love with my stocks and I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting Jules does. <laughs> I can be absolutely ruthless. You know, I dropped eight over the last 12 months and I was happy with that. Easy come, easy goes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Because you're always looking for a better opportunity. You're always looking for a more compelling investment proposition that you can sell to the market. Yeah, in my work as a, as a research analyst, 15 stocks is good because ideally what I would like is the one-third rule. Again, you want to spend one-third of your day modeling the business or updating your numbers or changing, you know, having a look at sensitivity analysis or reacting to news and updating your models on that base. You want to spend one-third actually doing the research, you know, writing the research where it can be either a company-specific piece of research or a sector piece of research. And the third, you want to spend the, the remaining third on marketing. So getting out, speaking to your clients. Now, my job here at Shoreham Partners is I've got three counterparties that I need to deal with. So it's not only the, the retail advisors or the high net worth segment, it's also the institutional market, the big fund managers who typically you know, have $500 million and above in their um, accounts. And you've also got corporate. So one third uh, modeling, one third research, report writing, one third marketing, I think is the best mix. Now, specifically in Zebit, what we're in wrong there in terms of dropping it, I think there were several things that went wrong with Zebit. And to be quite honest, I'm still a believer in the business. I actually really think there, there's a real business there that just is, is misunderstood in Australia. The reason Zebit is delisting is, number one, it's US-based. So there's no real competitor here in Australia with which we can point to to compare to here in Australia. The second thing is the market didn't understand if it was a buy now, pay later player, which it wasn't, or was it an e-commerce player like a, like a Kogan, et cetera. So it was, it was neither that as well. So it was sort of a hybrid 
e-commerce player that also offered a buy now, pay later financing proposition. So the market couldn't get their head around that. The third thing I think is we listed this business during COVID or just before COVID hit. So we couldn't even get management to Australia. So no one here in the market had physically met the US-based management team. That's a big call to make an investment proposition on company management who you haven't met, you know, face-to-face or one-to-one. So it's a new sector. Plus, you know, over the last 12 months because of COVID when they listed, you had massive volatility in bad debts with this business. You know, bad debts went from 8% up to, you know, 19% at one point which is a very, very high number when you compare that to 3% for buy now, pay later or less, and the fintech lenders at you know, 3 4% or less, and then it you know, went back to 12 13%. So the business model had also changed because of what happened during COVID. So the issue there really is around this business three years ago was a 20 million revenue business. The following year, two years ago, it grew to 40 million. Then a year before listing, it grew to 80 million, so it doubled again. So you had three years of growth, you know, doubling every year, it is very, very hard to keep doubling a business once it gets to about 100 mil revenues, which is what this business was doing. So you obviously saw the slowdown in sales. So I think it's a long-winded answer, but the reality is, number one, the market cap was already small when we listed it at 150 million. That's now, you know, sub 10 million. The liquidity wasn't there. The management weren't available for, 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 for roadshows. Um, COVID impacted the business. It was a new sector which the market didn't understand and didn't know how to pigeonhole it in terms of who we compare it to. Um, but fundamentally, there's a good business there. I mean, when we listed this, we listed it at a certain price. You know, the price now is is a fraction of what it was what we listed it, but the revenues are much higher. So it is a far better business. It's just that, you know, the timing wasn't great for it. One of the key messages that I keep kind of listening to when you, when you go through that is it's very key for the businesses to understand their story and communicate that correctly with confidence to the market and to you as analysts so that the market can really get your head around exactly what it is. Because like you said, if you're new as a concept or nothing to compare it, then you may get treated badly in, in the aftermarket, right? So so in a moment, we're actually going to be hearing more about Danny's thoughts on the, the sector that he covers, you know, his thoughts on inflation, hear more insights into how he does get involved with private businesses that become public. Um, but before we do all of that, we're just going to take a short break to listen to our sponsors. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You've had a lot of experience, Danny, in the past as a lead analyst on floating private businesses to the ASX. So recently you're involved with Adore Beauty, Silk Logistics and Ordinate, to name a few. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process you actually undergo with these businesses to help them list on the ASX? Absolutely. So usually the process starts about two years before listing. You know, I've been involved in close to a dozen, I think, IPOs here at Shaw in the last decade. Most of them are going to be done in the last five years. And it takes, you know, it's, it's a two-year window to IPO. So what's the process involved? Usually the analyst is brought in because they have the sector knowledge, okay? So we really do the due diligence in terms of we look at the company's numbers, what they're projecting. We look at the management quality, the quality of earnings, what they're trying to do. You know, are they, are they capital constrained? Are they growth constrained? Where are the issues in the business? You know, a lot of the things that we look at were really when we initiate coverage on a company that I talked about. So that process is very elongated and it means multiple meetings with management teams. It means providing to them feedback on 
what I believe is happening in the sector. Is there appetite in the market for another buy now, pay later player, for example? I would argue probably not at this stage, given what's happened in that space. Is there appetite in the market for a SaaS business at the moment? Absolutely, because they have recurring revenues and the growth trajectory is there. One of the things I find with IPOs is, and I think Felicity, you touched on this, is you've got to deliver in your first 12 months. I mean, if you come out in the prospectus and say you're going to do X amount of dollars in terms of sales or EBITDA, you've really got to hit those numbers because if you miss, you know, you will suffer poorly. You know, a classic example with me is that I worked on was Shaver Shop. Shaver Shop is a fantastic business, but in its first 12 months, it had some hiccups. Now, those hiccups were a function of a couple of things. Number one, they missed their earnings forecast for whatever reason. Number two, they had a high, very high reliance on a, on, a, on a new product out there called Daphne, D-A-F-N-E, which was a hair straightener, which was competing against other hair straighteners in the market, like GHD, which was the dominant player. Um, you know, So they had a very heavy skew in Christmas for those sales, did very well in the first year. Second year, the sales weren't so good. Okay, So that company downgraded and the share price basically halved. It's taken four years for that company to get back to where that IPO price was. And they've had three great years in the last three years in terms of results. So there's a lot of work involved in getting a company to listing, but that's not the end of it. That's not where the company's works ends because they have to deliver. And that is often the hardest thing. Um, and I can talk to Adore Beauty. That was another one. You know, the, the issue with Adore Beauty is they reset their revenue growth targets. Okay, so this business was growing at 60 70% per annum pre-IPO. It comes to market, COVID hits, which should have been a beneficiary for a lot of retailers, including, to some extent, Adore Beauty. But it pared down its growth forecast for the next one to two years, down to you know sub 40%. In fact, recently sub 20%. So the market re-rated that stock. So it's a really important thing in building a relationship pre-IPO with these businesses. Um, and you've got to be honest. You know, for every potential private business that wants to go public, you've got to knock back, you know, three or four for everyone that you take to the next step. And, you know, when I look at Ordinate, when I look at Silk, when I look at Adore Beauty, when I look at Dusk and OpenPay and Zip, which we listed all those and I was involved in all those, I probably had, you know, half a dozen to a dozen meetings pre-IPO with the management teams on that. You know, you do site visits, you go look at the businesses, um, you know, pre-COVID, You'd go overseas and you'd have a look at the businesses, particularly in the, for a US-based business. Um, so you've really got to kick the tires and understand the business model and really do your due diligence on the numbers. You know, what are the forecasts likely going to look like and how much certainty is there in those forecasts? And a lot can change in that two-year period leading up to Christmas. You know, you can have things like COVID hit, for example, or you can have a recession. It's an exciting process. It's one of the differentiating factors I bring to Shores, you know, unlike most of the other analysts who haven't been involved in IPOs, I actually don't mind doing it. As you get closer to the IPO, you've got to be careful as an analyst in terms of compliance and regulations. The ASIC is very strict. You know, we have a fantastic compliance team here in, you know, very, very strong information barriers. Once you get closer to IPO, the analyst work becomes less important because it's now it's then turned over to corporate who really have to drive that window to completion or execution to IPO. One other thing that you've kind of touched on there is sometimes it's in the company's best interest, right, to actually stay private for longer because if they're growing at 50% each year for three, four years, looks really great on paper to private investors, the market's going to see that get excited, but it's naturally going to mature and slow down, right? Every company has a life cycle. So sometimes it's maybe better beneficiary from your perspective in the seat that you sit in to stay private for longer, Get your groove, get your track record going, and then your business will be more translatable and understandable to investors in the everyday market. Well, they're doing it, right? You've got Canva, for example. Exactly. They've continued to stay private and they can raise a lot more capital at a higher valuation doing so. Yep. Chemist Warehouse are the same. You know, they've always got both of them always have investment bankers knocking on their door saying, let's go public, let's go public. And they're like, it's not worth the hassle. You're absolutely right. And- that brings to question something else that usually pops up during the IPO process, pre-IPO process, and that is acquisitions. A lot of these companies that we see, particularly in the technology space, they're what's called roll-ups, and the market doesn't like roll-ups. So that's you know buying acquisitions to buy growth effectively, and we see a lot of that in, in the pre-IPO market. So if you're growing at 50 60% per annum and suddenly you're, you're only growing at 20%, what's the only way? 
that you can grow, you know, grow that business back up to 30, 40, 50%, you make an acquisition. Okay, yeah. And then you make another acquisition, another. So it becomes self perpetuating. Okay. And then when you add up all those acquisitions, your actual underlying organic growth two, three years out isn't that impressive. You know, you've expended all this capital for what are effectively mature businesses. And that, that is a fundamental mistake that a lot of these technology companies make. I mean, even in the industrial space, when I covered mining services, there was a classic company that I covered, which I won't name. <laughs> they made 15 acquisitions in 10 years. And I went back after I dropped coverage of it, uh, you know, after a fund manager said, you know, could you do this exercise for me? I added back all the EBITDA contributions from those 15 acquisitions they made over the last decade. And you got to a certain number, let's call it 200 million. But when you looked at the company's accounts, they were nowhere near that 200 million. So clearly there'd been a loss of earnings. You know, there'd been massive attrition in those businesses and integrating them over the last decade. So you've got to be very, very wary of things like that. Yeah, it might sound good on paper, but Correct. it's actually not uh, translating to the bottom line. So stick to your knitting is what you're saying and being Absolutely. being a compelling business. So I guess recently we have um, a few different episodes here at Talk Money To Me. One of them is our order pad. I was pretty long and bullish on Dusk. I'm a personal consumer of Dusk. I keep buying the um, the products. <laughs> and yet in the six months, the share price is down, you know, almost 20%. So have Dusk kept to their knitting you know, what is an update from your perspective on Dusk? And is it a buying opportunity, do you think, right now? Absolutely. Or a top-up? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It still burns bright, that one. So, look, I, I really, conviction is very, very strong on Dusk. And the reason I say this is look at the compelling, attractive thesis on this. It's as follows. So, unfortunately, Dusk was released into a market that didn't understand the business, okay? The market is 95% male. And the overwhelming majority of pushback I got when I spoke to fund managers about this pre-IPO as well was, oh, candles, who cares? You know, it's not a good business. <laughs> 65% gross margins. Candles generates 65% gross margins. That's not a misprint. Amazing. Apart from LaVisa, which does, you know, high 70s, and there's 60 listed retailers on the ASX, no other company has higher gross margins than, than than Dusk does. And who does most of the like the consumer spending and shopping? Yeah, women. Yeah. <laughs> so, absolutely. So remember, and you know, even though it's down twenty percent, it's actually held up relatively well. We listed this at two dollars. It's still what two dollars sixty. Mm. It's yeah. still held up pretty well when you compare it to say a Booktopia or any of the others that listed during the same time, which are, you know are underwater. So the other reason I like it is candles are sixty five percent. Okay, what. At IPO, that was about 50% of their business in terms of turnover. Now it's about one third of their business. Where they are growing, the segment they are growing is is in an even higher margin business, and that is your, your fragrance oils and your diffusers. They are 70 to 80% gross margin, okay? And that is now one third of the business. The competitive, when we talk about competitive advantage for Dusk, they're not competing against Coles and Woolworths or Chemist Warehouse or Priceline or your local markets who sell you $10, $20 candles. And they're not competing against you, you believe it or not, $200 candles, you know, your Joe Malones and, and so forth. They are competing in that $30, $40 category, which is, you know, it, it's a mastige segment. It's a very, very strong skew to an average female who lives out in country or suburban. Or in my case, up here in Newcastle. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, so it's a fantastic business. That mix shift from candles into higher margin generating and higher returning fragrance oils and diffusers, it's what's setting them apart from your bed, body and bath, your body shops and all those other players that I talked about. So, Candice, it can still stay on the order pad then so we don't need to remove it at this point. Fantastic. You're getting a dividend yield of 7 8%, so you're getting a healthy yield there. No point putting your money in the bank or, you know, mm. like, I don't know many stocks that are offering you 6 7% dividend yield. You get an expansion of your network. You know, there are 127 stores at the moment. They're going to 150, 160 over the next two to three years. They've implemented a CRM and a loyalty scheme, which is incredibly, has incredible unit economics for their consumers. You know, more than half their sales now comes from repeat customers who spend more what's called average transaction value, and who spend more frequently, average order frequency. So that is the real positive that you want. Then you've got a really, really low cost operating model. If you walk into a dusk store, there's not an abundance of staff there, particularly outside the key lunchtime traffic brigade. Then you've got 
the discount that they trade at relative to their peers. With Shaver Shop, this is one of the cheapest listed retailers in Australia. Nine times PE. So your forward earnings, you're only paying nine times compared to a, a market average of 15, 16 times. It is very, very cheap considering the dividend, considering- and getting a 7% yield like you're saying. Absolutely. So, and mm. the only caveat with Dusk right now is the reset of earnings. Remember earlier I talked about they were cycling really, really strong growth over the last 12 months, particularly in online. Online is down 12%, okay, at the back end of the first half result. That's not so bad considering- if you go back to PCP, they were doing 40% growth in, in the physical store network and 100% growth in online. Still a very, very good outcome. So absolutely, hand on heart, very, very strong conviction still on Dusk. I'm very comfortable on a valuation perspective, dividend yield perspective, and earnings contribution perspective. So within your coverage, what is your number one stock pick going to be? You know, Why can't our listeners ignore this position in their portfolios? It's going to be ordinate. That's it. That's what I was going to say. So the code is AD8. So for those that don't know, Ordinate is an, a professional audiovisual player. So its technology is called Dante. Dante merely is an acronym for digital audio networking through the Ethernet. Historically, where sound is emitted, we've used what's called analog. Analog is the reams and reams and reams of cables that you see in the roofs of office towers and you know, uh, rock halls, conference centers, wherever there's sound admitted, you know, the back of your stereo system, the back of your TV, multitude of cables. The issue with that technology is it's expensive, it's low quality, particularly when you want to send video signals or audio signals long distances, it degrades. You know, when you're at a rock concert or a pop concert and you're in the up in the boondocks and you see the, the singer's lips moving but you don't get the sound until, you know, three, four seconds later, that's what's called latency. In a professional environment, that is unacceptable. You want very, very high resolution transmission of sound and video signals. The only way you can do that is via digital these days. And the reason this is my number one pick is because unlike any other technology company that I can think of, Ordinate do not have a direct competitor in this space. Their technology, which is called Dante, is the default standard in audio networking for digital globally. Even the Canvas, the Atlassians, the Amazon, they all have competitors. Even the Australian SaaS businesses here, you know, WiseTech and Altium, great businesses, they've all got competitors. The only competitor to, to Ordinate is the old analog technology, and that is still dominant. As that wears down, you only have one choice to go digital. And you, you want to go digital because it's higher resolution, it's lower latency, it's lower cost, it's much more bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. That tied in with the fact that when you look at the global AV manufacturers, the audiovisual manufacturers globally, Ordinate has signed on every single major one. I always put a challenge out when I talk to people about Ordinate. Go find me one major audiovisual player out there that has not signed on to use Dante. It makes absolutely perfect. When you're the global default standard, you have to use this if you want to go forward. If you're a house of worship, if you're a, a conference center, if you're a transport hub, if you're a, a corporate tower or a retail precinct or a, a courthouse, a police station, a school, a university, anywhere where there is sound, you are looking to upgrade your system or build a new infrastructure facility, you are going to use this technology in the future. Sounds like a no-brainer, to be honest. Absolutely. So the other reasons I like it is the CEO is, is the founder of the business. So he came out of the CSIRO. Skin in the game. Fantastic guy. So, you know, skin in the game, which we talked about earlier. It's got a large addressable market, billion dollars plus. And remember, they're the only players in this space at the moment. Then they're moving into software and video as well. So they dominate audio right now. They are now moving into software and video. So it's building out that ecosystem, which no other player out there in audio visual space can play. This is the principle. The biggest professional audio visual player globally is Yamaha. Yamaha, mm -hmm. 20, Yamaha ordinates number one customer and they're one of their biggest shareholders. So if the world's biggest professional AV player says, not only do we want to use ordinate, but we want to invest in this business as well. You know, we're, we hold 8% of the equity there. That is telling you something. So really now it is a market adoption story, okay? And it's about embedding that ecosystem. Unlike, say, Apple, you know, Apple have got a very strong ecosystem. Apple products working within the Apple, you know, Apple apps, Apple laptops, et cetera. They all speak to one another. 
Ordinates is different. The ecosystem for Ordinate is different. It is brand and Kodak agnostic. It's plug and play with anything. You can put Dante, Ordinate's main product, into any competing product out there in the market and it'll work. Doesn't matter if the codec for audio, for example, is an MP3 or an AAC file or a FLAC file, it will work with this technology. So being brand and codec agnostic is also very, very important in terms of getting that transition of that ecosystem to play through. Definitely. What's your um, price target and ordinate for the next 12 months? Uh, It's $8.50. My view is post-COVID unwinding, when everything reopens again globally, you know, your conference centres, your houses of worship, your, your, your rock festivals, your live arenas, your casinos, your sports stadiums, your theme parks, your hotels, resorts, they're going to do either of two, one, two things. They're either going to brownfield their infrastructure, i.e. upgrade their sound systems because it's been dormant for the last two, three years during COVID while they've been shut down or the last five years in terms of wear and tear, or they're going to put in a new greenfields system. And in both cases, the only op- there's only one option out there, okay? So we know that. We've done the channel checks. We've spoken to everybody who say there is no other option out there in the market. So the caveat here is there is a short-term risk, and this is why it's the opportunity for me. And this risk is not a problem intrinsic or endog- endogenous to ordinate. It's an industry-wide, and that is the chip shortage issue, yep. okay? So that is impacting all players. So the issue specifically with Ordinate is they cannot get enough silicon to make these chips, cards, and modules, okay? So they've had to defer some of their sales and prioritize their customer lists in terms of giving them you know, the, the chips, cards, and modules that they require for their speakers, amplifiers, et cetera. Now, remember, when we talk about the incremental cost here, what they've done is when you're talking about a $100,000 amplifier or a $50,000 speaker, to put in a, a $50 to $100 card or chip, it's an incremental cost. So they've pushed through 10 to 25% price increases. It means it goes from $50 to $60, 65 or $100 to $120. On a sound system that's, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's irrelevant. So the push through is really, really strong. So the chip shortage is impacting right now. But remember, this is not the fault of Ordinate. It's an industry why it's impacting the big companies like Samsung, like Intel, like Microsoft, even Apple in terms of a smartphone production. That will play out probably till the end of this calendar year before we see an unwind. But when it does unwind, you want to be in this name because right now it's $6.50. When it unwinds in December or later, this is back up to $11, $12, which is what it got to, you know, before COVID impacted it. That You've heard it straight from the expert, guys. 88 is the code on the ASX. Obviously, it's not personal advice. Have a look at your own circumstances, but very compelling business, as Danny has alluded to. And a buying opportunity because short term, like you've said, $8.50, but really more upside to come once all of these, uh, I guess, issues iron out that we're seeing play through the market. Absolutely. You know, this business, we listed it four years ago at $1.22. We almost didn't wow. get it. We almost didn't get it over the line. It was actually repriced, you know. And yeah. repricing an IPO is usually a no-no for a lot of fund managers. Yeah. So we priced it at a dollar twenty-two. Went to eleven dollars. It's still now six fifty. So it's more than five and a half times where it was. This is the opportunity. Look, it's never cheap. And that the one piece of pushback I get from the institutional market is when I go back to EV to sales. Long term, it's been trading at 13, 14 times sales. So it's not cheap. Okay, but it's now at ten times. Mm. So looking this cheap. is the time. If you want to be set for a long-term proposition in a segment that is the default standard that uses every major AV player out there, bar none, this is the business you want to invest in. Look it up. Well, you've sold me. I think I'm going to go buy <laughs> Ordinate tomorrow because the market's closed. If I closed could, right as now. an analyst, invest in stocks that I own, this is the number one one that I would go all in on. Fabulous. So when you're busy looking through these companies, I guess the final question we want to ask you is, are you sipping on tea, tequila or coffee? What's your preference when you do your research into these awesome businesses? Hopefully not tequila. <laughs> well, you know, what, if you look at my LinkedIn profile, there's a lot of wine involved in my LinkedIn profile. So, um, yes, German, German um, Riesling. Well, yeah, so it's, well, I invest in wine. So it's, it's not only, you know, an entertainment thing. So look, I'm a multi-beverage guy. So I'm across everything. Uh, I'm into my teas, my coffees, my whiskies, my tequilas, my cognacs, and especially wine. You know, wine's a big part of of what I do. You know, it's part and parcel of my life. It's it's it determines where I travel every year. You know, I've often said if if I don't, I, I would never go to a country that doesn't have a vineyard. 
Um, although you know, <laughs> my partner sort of, uh, she, she, she's agreed to, to disagree <laughs> on that, but multi-beverage is the way to go. And again, this is a millennial proposition that's really driving that. You know, 10, if you go back 10 years ago, you're either a beer person or a wine person or a non-alcoholic drinker. Now or people a cruiser. Vodka, vodka cruises. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Danny, for taking the time to chat with us. Our listeners are absolutely going to love this episode as much as we loved it. So we'll see you next time. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you again. Wow, that was such a great chat. The three things that I really got out of it is one, Dusk is still on the order pad. That's a win. Uh, do your own research on Ordinate. It's a very interesting company and it has no direct competitor, which is just, you know, unheard of really. Um, and that e-commerce and retail is slowing, but it's here to stay. What about you? Definitely agree with those points. Love the fact that Dusk is still very much a high conviction buy. I'm in the same boat as Danny. And I guess for me also, you know, it was interesting to hear that he was saying the supply chain kind of COVID issues, it has been such a bother for a lot of companies here in Australia and globally, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel that's coming through. And he was saying that's kind of going to wash out by the end of this year, which is exciting. But the reality is in the inflated environment that we're in, the kind of normalised um, earnings that we've now seen for tech companies in particular post-COVID expect higher cogs. That's going to be, I guess, a bit of a theme going through um, and a shift towards more earnings will be a focus for sure. And then the biggest thing for me, Felicity, was just stick to your knitting, right? Find really compelling businesses that have a great track record, um, are really good at beating their peers and stick for the long term. That's what we always say, right? Don't get caught up in the short term. You love that saying, stick to your knitting. That should be your I know, quote. I wish, <laughs> I'm not actually a, a knitter at all. So Maybe you should start. <laughs> <laughs> I should. So we hope you enjoyed today's episode, guys. But as always, before we sign off, please remember, although Felicity and I are financial advisors at Shore and Partners and, Daddy, and Danny indeed is a analyst, please note that our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice. Um, you should always go out and seek your own professional financial advisor before making your investment decision. It is based on the company information and what we know at the time of recording, which is the 6th of April, 2022. Now, make sure you also follow us on at Talk Money To Me podcast for daily market updates. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a review on Apple or Spotify. Five stars would be really nice. And remember, if you have any questions, please contact us, tmtm at equitymates.com. We will be back next week with our final analyst series. If you are an investor in the industrials, agricultural and healthcare space, this is one not to miss. Until next time. See you then, guys. Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.